Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. It is the holiday season, and every holiday season I get I get some questions. They're always the same, and one of those questions is about Old St. Nick. And typically, it is from parents who have younger children, and they're wrestling through, should they tell their children, is Santa Claus real? Is he not real? How are they to engage uh, the big round fella that comes from the North Pole? And so what I want to do is I want to walk through that very important question. And if you have children that are young, and they not only are they engaging in the culture, but the culture is engaging them and in some of the most radical ways and so we always want to be envisioning our children and teaching them incrementally and appropriately how to engage the world uh, because the world is not ashamed and it is not just coming to knock on our doors it's coming to knock our doors down and they want to indoctrinate us in their ways their worldview and so parents this is an important question. It's not a trivial question about Santa Claus. It is it is one of a thousand questions that we want to wrestle with, and I trust what I have for you here. Uh, it will be beneficial to you. Someone wrote in, and they asked the question, and so I want to read what they ask me, and then I want to work through uh, all the points that they're bringing up, and I think this will be very good for all of you, again, especially if you have younger children, but also if you're doing the work of discipleship and you're engaging young parents at churches, uh, this is how we grow our churches, by having more babies, and so there's always children running around, little children running around, and there's parents that, well, this is their first time through, and you remember if you have older children that Uh, the things that you wished you had known when you were rearing your children at that young age. And so if you're doing the work of discipleship, doing marriage counseling, doing parenting, teaching of some sort, maybe this would be a good resource for you, especially around the holiday season. And so you can read a 2,000 plus word uh, transcript of what I am going to share with you. You can also listen to the podcast. It's one of the more popular podcasts uh, on our website, lifeovercoffee.com and so you can listen to the podcast or you can watch the video and so again our resources are in a read watch listen format as i said that someone wrote in and asked the question and this is something that we do as a ministry many of you know that if you support our ministry financially you have a private forum where you can ask all your questions, the questions that are vital to you, and you have a private place. It's just us and no one else. And that's a great spot for some people, but everyone can't do that. Either they're not able to support or they don't want to support, and that is perfectly fine with me. We're not the only game in town. There are many wonderful ministries that are worth and worthy of your support, and maybe that's not ours, but still you have questions, and so we don't want to cut you off and only talk to our supporters, and so we do have a way of answering questions, and if you go to our discuss link on our website, you can click the 
the button and you can ask your question by typing it in or you can record your question in an audio format and we would love to hear it and if it's something that really applies to everyone maybe I would write an article like this because it has that ubiquitous application or perhaps we would send you a private video or a private note answering your question but I do want you to know you don't have to support our ministry and you can still get your questions answered like this one here now also if you haven't picked up our the, the world's greatest bookmark uh, life over coffee this is our bookmark this is also our prayer card and then on the back there's a qr code that takes you out to our website if you would like one or two of these if you would send us a a note and tell us where to mail them we would love to mail our life over coffee bookmark prayer card business card to you we'll do that freely we would cover the postage and so if you would like a couple of these we would love to send them to you we want you to have them and so please ask now this is the holiday season and so this is the primary time of the year uh, when people donate to our nonprofit we are a 501c3 here in the states and so if you have the ability to support us one time or on an ongoing basis, if you would do that, I would really appreciate it because that is how uh, we do what we do freely. That is why we give so many resources away. And it's our joy to do that. We trust God that he would move a, a few hearts uh, that are willing to contribute and to financially underwrite our ministry. And if you're in that camp, well, one, may your kind increase. And then two, please consider donating to our ministry. All right, so I've titled this, The Santa Claus Question, What Do I Tell My Children? And so I want to share with you the unedited version of what someone asked, and then I want to work through it. Here we go. Rick, what are your thoughts on Santa, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy? regarding what you tell your kids. Do you say these characters are real or not? Is this harmless fun or is there a problem with deception? The culture continues to creep into our homes and lives. I'm unsure how to walk through our seasonal intruder with younger children, especially when their friends are adamant about Santa being an actual person and any response that sounds remotely biblical, they react harshly and punitively. It makes it hard for kids to take a stand for their faith. This question that's being asked is not just relevant about what do you do about our, our ubiquitous friend, who our seasonal friend who comes around, uh, our omnipresent friend who comes around at the Christmas season, but it's also relevant because of the culture's intrusions as uh, the person is saying clearly in the question that they are asking. And so this has uh, a couple of applications. Specifically, what about Santa Claus? And then, as a, in a tertiary matter, uh, how do we engage our culture? And so that is important, too. And I trust that as I do this, that uh, I will be able to touch on those two points and give you some really practical advice. 
Most parents who have young kids do wrestle with the Santa question during this time of the year. Our children are older, and so we have passed that, but we did not ignore that when they were younger and they were asking those questions, and I'll talk about that in a moment. And so it's an important issue. And you really can't avoid it since our imaginary and ubiquitous friend never disappears through the holidays. He is everywhere in virtually every town. And so since you're asking this question, what I am going to do is I'm going to suggest that you reframe your argument with another set of questions. And I want to give you three questions. And I think these three questions will help to answer what you have written out for me. Question number one, how much of the culture's worldview and practices should influence your parenting? Now, that's something that we have to wrestle with because the culture and their worldview, they are not ashamed and they are not inhibited uh, from fostering their opinions, their worldviews, their presuppositions on us. And so it's not like you can go and hide from uh, what is scaling the walls and is encroaching into our familial context. And so how much of the culture's worldview and practices should influence your parenting? Question number two, is it appropriate to engage in the fun things of our world from a Christocentric perspective. So is that appropriate to go into the world and engage with them? Of course, here's the great modifier, from a Christocentric, a Christ-centered perspective. And then question number three, is it lying? And this is really getting to the heart of the specific question that was asked me. Is it lying to pretend Santa and other fictional characters are real? He mentioned the Easter Bunny and and also the Tooth Fairy. I wish the Tooth Fairy was real. I used to put uh, my teeth under my pillow and, and money did appear and a quarter to a little kid like me in the early 1960s was a big deal. And so anyway, I'll talk about that in in a moment. Now, what I want to do is I want to address all three of these concerns, Uh, the engagement of the world, uh, the engagement of the world from a Christos, or how much the world is engaging us, and then us engaging the world from a Christocentric perspective, and then this idea of, of deception about fictional characters. And so I want to address all three of those concerns, but I'm going to start by, I want to use three of the more common categories within Christendom to uh, frame and to think about this topic because you could answer the Santa question from different points of view, and I recognize that. And we have a broad audience, and so everybody that reads, watch, or listens to what I'm presenting here will not come at it from one singular view. And so what I want to do is to open up the accordion and and to give three different perspectives, and that will encompass most most of the people that will uh, partake on what I'm sharing here. And so I want to use the labels of, of right, left, and middle. And, and, th- and that represents three different perspectives, a 
something on the right, something on the left, and something in the middle. Now, let me give a little more clarity. When I say something on the right, again, I'm speaking within a Christendom mind, uh, mindset. And so on the right, I'm talking about separatist, okay? And so that's what I mean. And then on the left, I'm talking about liberal, uh, Christians who are more liberal, okay? And I'm not, ta- I'm, not, I'm not making a political statement is what I want you to, to hear. And so on the right, we'd have separatists, and on the left, we'll have liberal Christians. And then in the middle, we'll have what I'm going to call biblicist, bibliocentric Christians. And so I want to answer the question from those three different perspectives, and that swath will cover most of the people that will uh, take advantage of this resource. So let me start on the right and talk about the separatist. This Christian collective embraces a separation mindset. A synonym to separation would be legalism, okay? The legalist perspective. The legalist perspective is to separate from the culture. And so you draw a hard line, and then you step over that line, and now you have separated from the culture. Now, in reality, when you think about this from a rational point of view, a separatist mindset, as I have described it, of separating from the culture is not tenable because separation from the culture is literally impossible. And so it would be more accurate to say that anybody that takes a legalistic perspective or a separatist practice, what it really is is a selective or convenient separation. That is what we're really talking about. So we can pick and choose what we want to separate from. Uh, And it's usually things that are convenient. We are able to do that in this particular country or this particular uh, region uh, that we can do this because it's convenient to do so. A real separatist creates a parallel and autonomous universe which is impossible because you cannot escape the culture entirely. And so when we talk about separation from the world, uh, we mean that at best in a hybrid sense because nobody can literally separate from the world until they leave the world, and we call that death. And so the so-called separatist picks how he wants to dissociate himself from the culture, okay? And now typically the separatist will have a a list of, of do's and don'ts regarding cultural engagement, and that's the convenient factor or the selective separatism. They will create a list of do's and don'ts. These are things that we will do with the culture. These are things that we won't do with the culture, and it, thus that is the separatist. That is the best way probably of describing what separatism really is. For example, uh, what they will do is they will gravitate toward those that are like them, and they will even create a subculture within the broader culture in which we all live. It is the micro within the macro. And usually their standards or their rules Typically, when you start talking to legalists or separatists, you will see that their list of do's and don'ts, they draw more attention to their anti-culture worldview than the Christ that they love. Uh, 
Their rules typically have more to do with reacting to the behavior of the culture, and you, you don't really necessarily hardly ever see Christ exalted in the list of rules. It's just anti-mirroring what they see in the culture. And so instead of modeling the Christ's life by blending into the culture, they live counter to the prevailing culture Again, it's a parallel universe. Now, I understand why they want to do this and, and what, why they want to do it and what they're trying to accomplish, but too often their lives are contradictory and it creates some kind of extreme asymmetry with the world that is not really realistic. Let me give you a few examples. They eat in restaurants operated by the culture. We all do. They wear clothes made by the culture. Everyone does. These separatists will watch the culture's movies. They drive the culture's cars. They work for the culture, and they take the culture's money. They spend the culture's money to purchase more things from the culture. You see the impossibility of this. They enjoy watching and cheering and laughing at the culture's television shows. Many of them love to root for the culture's sports teams. You see, nobody is a real separatist, and that's why it creates this extreme asymmetry that I was talking about. I mean, even the Amish have caved to the difficulties and challenges of separating from the world. They live in the world imbibe from the world and enjoy many of the world's benefits, just like the rest of us. They are participating in God's world while enjoying those things in God's world, and that does not have to be wrong. And so a separatist mindset can, can create an odd kind of life that creates an extreme asymmetry. And I would, I, I would just appeal for those types of people, our brothers and sisters, who believe and practice that way, that they reconsider uh, that it's not a logical or rational way to live, and maybe even more importantly, that's a hard life to export to the next generation. And you see a lot of generational fallout from the children of uh, the separatists because they just don't want that kind of life. And so it's not really a regenerating life as in they can't reproduce it to the next generation or export it to their children. And I've seen that over and over again, uh, the lack of or the inability to export to their children, which leads to this second group on the other side. These are what I call, I'm calling in this uh, talk, the liberals. The second group on the left, typically they are reacting to the separatist. Often these people on the left, the liberals, are children of the separatists who felt suppressed by the extra biblical rules of their parents. And that's what I was saying earlier, that separatism is not really an exportable religion. And it's not something that I would recommend as a former legalist, as a former separatist. Their separated parents' lifestyles did not export to them, and so the children chose another path. 
And many people in this group on the left, and, and I've, I've made like a career out of talking to these children who have come out of legalistic families. And so many of these children who are now adults, they are either angry at or they carry an air of superiority toward the separatist. And I'm calling them liberals here for simplicity's sake. The worst case scenarios are those who tout their freedom on this side as an attitude a lifestyle many times that is outside of biblical parameters, that they overshoot the gospel, that they're launched out of the, the, the separatist canon because it just made no sense to them, and I understand that, but they shoot out and they land over in liberalism many times outside of b- biblical uh, parameters, and ironically, These people over here aren't free from their past. They're merely reacting to their past. And many of these people are still in bondage, even though they like to think of themselves as being free. Because when you talk to them, their history becomes their identity. And they always talk about where they came from and the legalism that they came out of, not the gospel. Rather than the Bible informing their theology, it's their past experiences that become the filter through which they see life, what happened to them, uh, how it did not work, the wrongness of the separatist. And then what they do, many of them do, is they use this term called grace, and it's grace over legalism. And what that really means when you begin to investigate and get inside of it, this nice-sounding word of grace over legalism is really an overreaction to legalism. And it's hard to appeal to them about such things like obedience and discretion and sin because they disdain critique. They see your analysis of them in their current lifestyle as judgment and and harshness and rule-based and bondage and heavy-handed authoritarianism because that is their identity as they react to their past. It is a legit past, and I don't agree with that past as I have critiqued the separatists, but overreacting to legalism and landing in this over here on the liberal side And then calling it grace that kind of makes it sound all right. Well, they talk about grace. Actually, they talk about grace and less about sin. And typically they have weak sin categories because they don't understand how the doctrine of grace and sin coexist and interact. And so they live confusing lives that ultimately is not exportable either to their children And then their children begin to react to this sloppy grace that they live in, which was a reaction to coming out of a legalistic environment. And then you have this third group, and I'm calling them the Biblicist. This group works hard for biblical integrity and theological precision. They're not anti-culture, and they're not culture-centric. They use the Bible as their guide and filter, hoping to live practically in the culture while engaging the culture. The Biblicist is bibliocentric. 
They're not afraid to make practical life decisions and to live by them. They evolve, or what the Bible calls progressive sanctification. They effectively live in the culture, but they guard against crossing biblical guidelines. Their worldview is how to think about their culture while engaging them without being adversely affected by the culture. The biblicist perspective sees no choice but to engage the culture while living in the culture. It's like a fish forced to live in water. The fish cannot alienate himself from the water, though he must refrain from being bloated by the water. To live biblically in your culture requires courage and discernment and compassion and discretion. It sounds like, quote, we're in the culture, therefore we must discern how to engage our culture for God's glory. Rather than separating from them or blindly imbibing their ways, we look to our Savior, hoping to emulate how He lived in and enjoyed and engaged His culture. The separatist on the right rarely changes. The liberal on the left radically changes. The biblicist in the middle progressively changes. And so with these things in mind, I want to answer specifically the Santa question, and I hope that I communicate it from a bibliocentric perspective. Lucia and I have spent considerable time thinking about living like Christ in our personal lives, in our marriage, in our family, and in our culture. We believe in and we practice progressive sanctification in a community. We do not believe, and I would not suggest, that we have arrived. How arrogant that would be to, to suggest or to imply or to hint such a thing. We have not arrived, but I do want you to know the track that we are trying to run down, walk down, maybe even stumble down at times. If anything, we are a work in progress. And so as for the Santa question, we do filter this dilemma through a biblicist filter. And honestly, the Santa question is not an issue in our home. It never has been. It is a tertiary matter at best. It does not warrant the scrutiny and time that we devote to the essential thing in our house, and the essential thing is the gospel. However, we want to interact with this tertiary question because of the gospel. It is because of the gospel that we do not want to dismiss this question as, so, as though it is irrelevant, even though it might be a tertiary matter. We cannot keep from thinking about Santa because we are, as I trust you believe yourself to be, gospel representatives. No areas in our lives is outside the gospel's application. Thus, the Santa question is primarily about integrity, living out the gospel with integrity, which brings us to a very important question. Can we tell our children something is true when it is not true? Now, does this mean that we should separate from Santa and completely shut our kids off from one of the culture's most prominent icons? Let me illustrate. 
In 2010, we went to Disney World. Our children interacted with Mickey Mouse, with, with Pluto, with Goofy, with Snow White, and 20-plus other characters they knew through movies and, and television. Lucia and I do not have a conscience issue with our children interacting with Disney's characters. We had less of an issue in 2010 than we do today, including such characters as Daniel Boone and Johnny Tremaine. We wanted our children to imagine and to explore by interacting with these fictional as well as non-fictional characters. Our children our, our children learn more about our culture when they are younger, and they, they regu regularly ask us this or that. Is, is this real, Dad? Is, is that real, Dad? See, they, they live in a world and a generation that sometimes makes it hard to discern truth from fiction. I mean, is a boy really a boy? Is a girl really a girl? How do you feel? You know, that's what the culture teaches. No, there is objective truth, and children are exploring objective truth. And so this then becomes very important for a parent to take on the point and to begin to walk our children what is true and false because truth is being is under attack today like never before in our lives. Daddy... Is that person, is, is that idea, is that thing real? That used to be a common question from our children when they were younger. That, that's a great, those are great questions. Questions about mysteries are a privilege for a parent to answer. Young children are primarily dependent on their parents to guide them in truth, even though our culture would say, no, parents are irrelevant. Let the schools teach them what is truth. No. No, 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 no. It's the parents' privilege, responsibility, and opportunity. And younger children are really dependent on parents to guide them in truth. They don't struggle with fiction. Our children didn't struggle with, with fiction, but they regularly ask for help to know the difference between what is genuine and what is fake. It's not about struggling whether it's fiction or not. Just tell me what is fiction and what is not. Lucia and I believe it's our responsibility to teach our children to discern between right and wrong, true and false. Our culture will eager, eagerly give them their worldview if we do not do this. And so with these things in mind, we regularly did three specific things with our children. One, we taught them to think imaginatively especially regarding God and heaven and other divinely given things. Number two, we taught them to discern truth and falsehood, right and wrong, good and evil. We wanted that to be very clear to them. And so, yeah, grow in your imagination. Think about the wonders and splendor of God. Read Revelation 5 and just imagine what that would be like. Simultaneously, we want you to, to discern between truth and falsehood, right and wrong, good and evil. And number three, we reinforce that we will never, ever, by the grace of God, lie to them on any matter, even Santa Claus. You see, truth, or a synonym to truth, is, is faith. 
trust. Truth is the most significant issue, the most significant obstacle in the Bible. Fear not. What are they saying? Trust. Truth, trust, hope, belief, confidence, faith are all synonyms, and God calls Christians to live by these things. Without faith, we cannot please God. There is no topic in the Bible more important than truth. Remember the first lie, did God say? One of the most significant parental values centers on truth, and Satan introduced the tension between truth and falsehood to Adam and Eve. God's truth is the foundation upon which everything else in the world sits. If truth falls, we fall. God calls me to model Him to our children. In Ephesians 5.1, as beloved children, imitate God. I want to imitate God. I want to model God. And one of the most, one of the best ways, one of the more explicit ways to model God is by being truthful. What they see and experience in me gives them their earliest and most potent interpretive grid of God the Father. In John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Talking about God's word is truth. And, and the truth is how we sanctify, is how we, is how we grow and mature, is how we are cleansed from impurities. Our children know Santa is not real. I'm a separatist, separatist, but we enjoy the fictional idea of Santa. I am a liberal. A few years ago, we watched Herbie the Love Bug, the circa 1970 version, and we laughed hard as we cuddled in our bed and enjoyed each other, eating popcorn, watching the movie. Our children and your children are smart enough to enjoy fiction. They can thoroughly enjoy the idea of our cultural Santa Claus without being told he is real. God gave them the capacity to think outside of the box. Imagination. Fiction does not have to trip them up, and it will not trip them up if you tell them the truth about fiction. If my Heavenly Father said something was true, only years later I find out it was a lie, I would have difficulty believing anything that God says. We want our children to embrace the truth without doubt, without reservation. Teaching them to trust is part of the process of pointing them to Jesus, the one I want them to believe in ultimately. I do not wish to tell Santa lies, to unnecessarily trip them up as I teach them about the Savior. And so please be free to enjoy Santa if you choose to. Only do so with discernment. If our children can enjoy Mickey Mouse or, or play with Woody from Toy Story, the little character, I think they can do the same with Santa. We do not want them to have an anti-Santa perspective that puts them in an awkward place to explain their separatist view to their confused non-Christian friends. That's that asymmetry that is not really 
tenable or practical. If the world chooses confusion, if the world chooses to stumble over our view of anything, let Christ confound them. Let Jesus be the stumbling block rather than Santa. I would recommend that you tell your children the truth. If you have already lied to them, let them find out from you how and why you lied to them. Rather than finding out from their friends, be honest. They will believe you. Their trust is what you want, right? I've titled this the, the Santa Claus question, what do, what do I tell my children? It was a specific question that was asked to me. In Galatians 5.1, it says, For freedom Christ has set you free. And so reinforce the importance of truth in your home and your life. Let them know that Jesus is the truth and that you want to teach them to follow you as you follow him in truth. Be free, but be truthful. Thoroughly enjoy your world with discernment, with wisdom, with discretion. I want to wrap up with just a couple of questions. Does the Bible inform you or does something else? when making the Santa decision. Some folks base their decision on their past. Well, this is how we did it, or this is what happened to me, and I'm now reacting to that. Others can become very pragmatic. My parents told me that Santa was real, and I turned out okay. You're on shaky ground if anything other than the Bible is your authority. And so question number one, does the Bible inform you or something else when making the Santa decision? And then finally, number two, have you made a parenting mistake, but you know better now? I think we all have. And there's an easy fix for this. Does the grace of God govern your heart? Because you know His grace is more significant than your mistakes. And so don't fall into the trap, the legalistic trap of thinking that the mistakes you have made is why your children are messing up now, assuming that they are. Because the person that thinks their mistakes is what made them mess up is saying that if I had only done this, they would be doing better now rather than the grace of God. We want to rest in the Lord's grace. And if we uh, have made a mistake and we know better now, well, then the simple answer is to start doing better now. And maybe some of that means going to your children and say, hey, uh, we made a mistake about this or that, whether it's the Santa question or, or something else, and start by being truthful and honest with them. The Santa Claus question, what do I tell my children? You can read everything I just shared with you. You can listen to it. You can watch. Thank you so much, and I hope that you have a, a super Merry Christmas. And if we can serve you in any way, just please reach out and let us know. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.